as we've been going through the book of Leviticus, um, we've been kind of slowing down, and now we're hitting a section of Leviticus that's really controversial, and it's really crazy, and so we're going to take a lot of time on it, uh, and I hope that's okay with you guys. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you guys kind of a brief rundown, kind of so you know what we're in for, like where we're headed, what we're going to be going over in the next couple weeks. And next week what's going to happen is me and Bo are going to sit up here and we're going to tackle uh, piece by piece of this issue because obviously me and Bo like talking about sexual stuff because that's what we do for a living. So we're going to get up here, we're going to do like a little talk and then we'll allow you guys to ask questions, any questions that you have. Uh, but we're going to be basically going through um, what the Bible has to say to us about our sexuality, um, how God desires for us to use it, um, how he doesn't desire for us to use it, why does he uh, like certain things and not like certain other things, and we're going to be tackling some of these issues in a really cool way. So, um, yeah, that's where we're going to be going for the next couple weeks. Um, but just to show you guys where we're at, we finished Leviticus 16 last week, which had to deal with a day uh, that is actually next week. Uh, it's the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people. It's a, it's a holiday that they still, still celebrate to this day, and it's, it's next week. It's September 18th. Uh, for those of you guys who have Jewish friends. But we talked about how the Day of Atonement was a foreshadowing of Christ, that the, the Day of Atonement all dealt with this idea of God removing the sins of His people so that He might have a relationship and a deep, intimate love for His people. And it was a really beautiful thing. There's a lot of symbolism there. But that's going to be like the foundation for the stuff that we're going to be talking about. We're always going to be going back to this idea of atonement as we talk about this. Because... Where we're going to be talking about now, which is going to be Leviticus 18 on, um, is it's going to be talking about specific laws that God has for us. Now, a lot of what we've been talking about in Leviticus only applied to the Jewish people. It means that we as Christians don't even have to worry about it. We don't do it anymore because all of it was fulfilled in Christ. All of it was fulfilled when Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day and filled us with his Holy Spirit uh, in the moment of our salvation. All those things we don't do anymore. Leviticus 18 on, basically, is stuff that we have to worry about as Christians. Uh, it's stuff that we do need to think through and we do need to follow as well. Uh, because these are the moral commandments of Leviticus. So when we're talking about the different parts of Leviticus. I, when we began this book, I, I went over it with you guys, but I'll just recap a little bit. Um, Leviticus is broken up into a couple sections. The first section of the law, what you could call the law that the people of Israel had to follow to be in a relationship with God. The first part was what we called ritual commandments. These were the commandments that enabled the people of Israel to have a relationship with God through sacrifice and through purification laws. And we went over those. Um, the second part of the law is what we would call judicial commands. Um, this is because the nation of Israel was a nation. They needed to have laws. They needed to have things that you were allowed to do and things that you weren't allowed to do. And those things we also, we pay attention to. They're important to us because they are a part of God's commandment and law for his people, and that's important. And they are built upon moral commandments. But ultimately, we don't actually follow them because we're not a nation. You guys get that? The Christians, there's no such thing as a Christian nation out there. Uh, there's no uh, Christopolis that we could go live in. You know, it doesn't exist. Uh, Christians, we exist in the body of Christ all around the globe, and we all have different nationalities, ethnicities, and we all live in different countries. So because of that, there is no legal commandments for the people of God today. 
But the moral commandments that underpin the legal commandments, they apply to everybody still. Uh, the greatest example of those moral commandments that pretty much everyone knows about are the Ten Commandments. All right, the Ten Commandments are for today. Um, they're, they're things that still apply. It's not that like when Jesus rose from the dead, now committing adultery is okay. Uh, or mor- murder is totally fine. Right? These are commandments that are for the children of Israel and for God's people all throughout time. Leviticus 18 falls into this category. They're commandments that applied to the children of Israel. They were given to the children of Israel, but they apply today. They are things that we need to pay attention to. And Leviticus 18 deals primarily with sexual commandments. And that's why I said it's a little controversial. It's a little controversial because it's dealing with how we ought to function as people with our sexuality in a way that pleases and honors God. God has given us a wonderful gift in our sexuality. And with that gift, he's given us a context. He's given us um, a framework that he desires and yearns for his people to live under so that we might enjoy his gift to its fullest potential and have unity with him at the same time and honor him uh, with the gift that he has given us. So uh, me and Bo are going to tackle that. We're going to go over what is God's design and purpose for sex. Why is it that way? And, and so on and so forth. Um, Leviticus 17, we're not going to go over. You guys can go over it on your own time. It's basically, it's a very short chapter and it just deals with commandments regarding blood. So the people of Israel weren't allowed to eat blood. Uh, they weren't allowed to drink the blood of animals. They weren't allowed to kill animals and, and uh, like eat their meat raw, which the pagan nations did. Um, and God's reasoning is because he says, hey, the life is in the blood. I have given you this blood of this animal to make atonement, meaning that it's a, it's a symbol of how you and I are going to have intimacy is through this blood, so don't eat it, don't touch it. Um, none of us have to worry about that because I don't think any of you guys drink blood, do you? All right. if, you, if you drink blood, you might want to read through Leviticus 17 and you know, get some info on that. But for those of you who don't, you know, good on you. You already follow it. All right. But like, moving on to Leviticus 18, we're going to read this, just the first couple verses that will give us kind of the intro to this section. We'll talk about them, and then um, I'll leave time at the end for questions. Because again, I know it's a controversial topic. So Leviticus 18 verse 1 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwell, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So, in these first couple verses, God is telling his people, he's saying, look, I want you to be, and it's this word that we've been using over and over again as we've gone through the book of Leviticus, I want you to be holy, which just means set apart. I want you to be different. Don't be like the people around you. Don't act like them. Don't live like them. And one of the primary ways that God is going to tell them to set themselves apart, to be different, is in the way that they utilize their sexuality. And he's saying, don't live like the people around you. Don't operate in the same sexual conduct that you see around you. Um, it's very interesting to me that um, a lot of Christians today are actually freaked out at the, uh, the, the, the laws regarding sexuality in America. Um, you know, I, when I think about it, and we'll talk about this more as I go through this study, 
but it really doesn't intimidate me or weird me out at all. And the reason why it doesn't is because God has always called his people to be different than the world. Um, why should it shock me that the world uses their sexuality in a way that God is not happy with? Um, that shouldn't surprise me, and it shouldn't shock me in the slightest. They don't have a relationship with him, and they don't want to walk with him. Why would they offer up their sexuality, which is such a personal, intimate private, important part of your life, why would they offer it up to a God that they don't even follow or believe in? So to me, that the, the world is going away from God's plan and design for sex, that doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't impact me at all, to be honest. When I think about my sexuality and how I ought to use it, I think about what the Word of God says, not what my culture around me is doing. God tells us to be different than the people around us. He tells us to act differently to not worry about what the world is doing around you, but to act in a way that is honoring and pleasing to Him. Now I'm going to go over um, briefly kind of what is in this chapter, and we're going to talk about some of the, the problems and some of the, the good parts that are here. Uh, so when you go through this chapter, the first part deals with incest. Um, incest, having, having sexual intimacy with people that are directly related to you. So father-daughter relationships, brother-sister relationships, uncle-niece relationships, uncle-nephew relationships, stuff like that. The Bible says, no way. You are not to have incestuous relationships with people. That is not what God designed for your sexuality. The next part gets into bestiality. You are not to have sexual intimacy with animals, right? You are a human being. You were made in the image and likeness of God. If you are to utilize your sexuality, it will be with another image bearer of God. It is not going to be with an animal. They do not bear the image of God in the way that you and I do. It's not right. It's not something that God intends for us. Uh, the next part that it goes over is it goes over homosexuality. Right? And again, like I said, we're going to talk about this because I know it's, it's a very touchy topic. Right? And it talks about homosexuality and it talks about other regulations within the marital relationship, which is really really interesting. Now when you read through it, what you realize is that the penalty for breaking these laws, the penalty for going against God's command, if you lived in Israel, if you were a national Israelite and you went against any of these, was death. It was the death penalty. And that's pretty radical. Some of the sexual things that we're, we're going to talk about that happened within a marriage, the penalty was being cut off, meaning that you would be ostracized from your community if you practice particular things within your marital covenant. Um, but the ones that are really touchy, the incest, the homosexuality, the bestiality, those were the death penalty if you practice them, which is pretty radical and it's pretty hardcore. Now here, here, when I said there's some problems with that, this is what I mean. When you look at cultures and societies throughout the world, um, Israel being one of them, by the way, and you were to ask most of them, and even today, if you were to ask most of them, what is the central problem with mankind? The vast majority of cultures would respond and they would say, the central problem with mankind is arrogance. People who are self-absorbed and think too much of themselves, they're the ones who make the world a bad place. And they have a pretty solid argument, don't they? When you look at the world and you look at the horrible atrocities that we can think about, like, you, know, you think about the Holocaust, right? Where did the Holocaust come from? Well, it came from a group of people who truly believed that they were an elevated species over other people, and they enforced their rule upon them through bloodshed and subjugation, right? That's where the Holocaust came from. It came from a group of people being arrogant. You guys get that? It came from people being arrogant. 
If you look at even in communism and the, the massive atrocities done under Joseph Stalin and his regime and the millions of people that were killed through his programs and government, where did it come from? It came from a group of elitist people in Russia who thought that they were better than other people and so they subsequently starved out and murdered millions of people. Right? And you could go down the list of all the major atrocities in the world. It comes from a place of people thinking too much of themselves and subjugating those that they think lesser of. You guys understand that? So because most cultures have seen it that way, they said the number one thing that we need to do is we need to keep people from entering into this, as they called it, hubris, right? pride, arrogance. And they figured, like, how do you do that? So a lot of the ways they did that is they had moral teachings and they had moral commandments that were meant to make people feel, for lack of a better word, bad about themselves, right? So you come up with legal or moral commandments that when people hear them, you can't possibly live up to this standard. And so no matter who you are, you're going to be humbled. You guys get that? You're going to be brought low in your own estimation of yourself. And unfortunately, there's a lot of repercussions to this line of reasoning. And I would say, I would argue, that the Christian church previously, I, I feel like we're, we're bending against this now, and there's repercussions to that too, um, but I feel like the Christian church previously, when I was growing up, they definitely erred on this side, right? They definitely thought this way, and it had a huge impact on my life and my relationship with God. We call this reasoning today in the church, we call it legalism. You guys ever heard that term? Legalism. Relating to God only through His commandments. So it has very little to do with loving God. It has very little to do with loving your neighbor. It has everything to do with what do you follow and why do you follow it and how much do you do for God. That's what legalism is all about. Now when you read these commands, it's impossible to get away from the fact that these are legalistic commands. You guys get that? You cannot say that these commands are loving, right? A command that carries with it the death penalty is not a loving one. I can't look at my wife and be like, hey, honey, I'd really appreciate it if you did this for me, but if you don't, I'll kill you, right? None of you would be like, what a loving husband, man. He just cares so much for his wife. There's no way, right? That's clearly a legalistic command based on fear. You guys get that? It's a fear-based commandment to get her to conform to what I want. That's legalism. Okay? Most churches, like I said, struggle with that. Where when I was growing up, what I usually heard from people in order to get my act together, meaning when I heard sermons that were intended, they were geared towards getting me to act a particular way, they were fear-based. They were fear-based. So they were people telling me, hey, you know, ship up and, and, and act this way, or else dot, 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 right? So we'll use sexuality now because sexuality was a huge issue for me, still is. Um, it was a huge issue for me, especially when I was a teenager, and the type of sermons that I heard growing up really messed me up. Because usually what I would hear when people talked about my sexuality and talking to me about giving my sexuality to God was I heard basically, if you don't, you're going to get a sexually transmitted disease, you're going to have unplanned pregnancies, you're going to upset God, He's going to be very, very upset with you and angry and wrathful towards you, and you might not even be saved if you commit these particular acts. 
all I heard was negative, 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 negative. And beyond hearing a bunch of negatives, all I heard was repercussions. So I had a lot of fear in my life about the repercussions of how I was utilizing my sexuality. Now here's the big problem for me. I was not successful in acting in a way that was honoring to God with my sexuality. Meaning I wasn't living a life when I was a teenager that was honoring to God's plan and purpose and design for my sexuality. And these are the things that this kind of reasoning, this kind of teaching did to me. And it's actually one of the major reasons why our culture is going the opposite way right now. Okay? Here's the first thing. Shame. Shame is a huge part of this legalistic teaching. Okay? Not just shame about what you've done, but shame about what you think, what you feel, who you are. So, for instance, when I came into church and I heard all these sermons and I heard all these teachings about my sexuality, I got this idea that everybody around me has figured out God's plan and purpose for their sexuality except for me. Right? So I got this idea that I was kind of alone and that everyone else was kind of making it work, that they were all kind of on the right page. And I was the only one who couldn't really figure it out. So because of that, that alienated me. You guys get that? It alienated me and made me feel different than the people around me. And it made me feel very, very shameful. It made me feel very shameful about who I was and the person that I, uh, the person that I was becoming. Now, when you feel shameful, it, it could be, it, it's basically impossible to change. Because essentially, this is what I heard over and over again from the pulpit. I heard, this is what God expects from you. And if you're not living up to this, these consequences will happen to you, right? There's no hope in that message. You guys see that, right? For someone who's living here like me, there is no hope for you. It's basically just get here or you're going to continue to live out consequences. But they never told me how to what? They never told me how to get there, right? So I was just kind of like wallowing in self-pity and shame of just like, how do I get there when I don't know how? Beyond that, there was, a, there was another, probably deeper problem with this shame. When you feel like you are just a screw-up and that everything you do is a mess and things like that, that shame can settle in so much that you can, it could be almost impossible to believe that God loves you. You can believe it on a purely intellectual basis, but it is impossible to really believe it on a spiritual and emotional basis. Right, so intellectually, if you were to ask me when I was a teenager, does God love you? I'd be like, oh, of course. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Of course God loves me. He gave his son for me. I, I knew that up here. But deep down in my heart, I realized over the years, I did not believe that God loved me. Or to put it another way, if you believe that God loves you, in what way does he love you? How does God love you? See, for me, I thought that God loved me kind of as uh, just like he was committed to me kind of thing. Where God was just like, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. But he, there was no joy there. I never got the, to put it another way, I never got the sense from God that he had a passionate, intimate yearning to be in a relationship with me. That he wanted to be with me. Which is what love is, right? I mean, if I saw a couple that was together and they just despised one another and they didn't like each other at all, but they were still together, I wouldn't be like, wow, love. If I saw a parent who just like abused his kid all the time and he's like, but he's still my son, I wouldn't be like, what a loving father, you know? He sticks with him. It's great. 
Love is demonstrated not through people sticking with one another. Love is more demonstrated through the idea of passion, intimacy, joy, and fellowship. You guys get that? Compromise, things like that. That's how love is demonstrated. Do you feel like God loves you that way? Right? I, I couldn't really get there because of what I was taught all through my life. If I believe that I'm a constant failure to God, why would I believe that he loves me intimately or in any way wants a relationship with me? Right? I didn't really believe that. I thought I did, but I, I didn't. The second one I've already kind of me- mentioned, but I'll say it again. Isolation. It isolated me. Now, isolation is a big deal. Um, I use this example a lot, uh, especially when, because me and Bo teach at Salvation Army, um, and, I, and we deal with a lot of people that have um, habitual sin issues. And um, there's, there was an interesting experiment done back in the, I think it was the 60s, they did this. But they basically, they wanted to figure out how addictive cocaine was. So they locked a rat in a cage with a, two bottles of water. One was laced with cocaine, the other wasn't. Right? And every time they did the experiment, the rat OD'd and died. So they're like, oh, okay, man, this, this is like way addictive. Because okay? a rat will totally ignore his survival instincts and die every time that we put it in there. So cocaine is like way addictive. In fact, because of this experiment, this addiction model was designed in America where they believed that addiction was a disease and was not your fault. You guys get that? Because if, if rats are even going to OD on cocaine every single time, and they're animals, clearly that rat's not partying, right? That rat's not working Wall Street. That rat's just a rat, right? And he's, every single time he's dying, they'd be like, oh my gosh, like it's not even your fault. Cocaine is so addictive that if you touch it, if you take it, you're, you're done. You're done. You have no ability to stop yourself. You are completely done, right? <laughs> Later on, as Bo said, another more wise scientist thought, that's lame, right? That's, that's not a good experiment. I don't like it. And this is why he thought it was lame. He was like, you put a rat in a situation where all he has to do is do cocaine. You guys get it? He's in a cage alone. He has nothing to do except for get high, right? So of course he's going to OD, right? His, his choices are either to stare at the bars or to get high and OD and die, right? As a really dumb experiment. So he... I'm sure, yeah, that's right. If you, if you locked anyone in a cage alone and gave them two bottles of water, one with cocaine or not, all of us would OD and die, right? It's, it's, it's a ridiculous experiment. So he redid the experiment, right? In this experiment, he created like a rat park, right? So in this park, it had like a whole rat community with like rat homes and rat, you know, workout equipment and rat, you know, whatever, whatever rats like to do, right? And it had a bunch of rats around him. And the same experiment, though, the only sources of water in that park, in that community, where one was laced with cocaine and one wasn't, but this time, only a couple rats even tried the cocaine-laced ones, and the ones that tried the cocaine-laced water never went back. Okay? So you see what he proved? All right, he proved that, is cocaine addictive? Of course it's addictive. No, one, no one's going to argue that. Of course, if you take a lot of cocaine, it's going to have a biological effect on you, and it's going to compel you to want to do it again. But that doesn't mean you're powerless against it, first of all. And secondly, what he proved is that the more important issue is not the drugs, it's the cage. You guys get that? It's not the drugs, it's the cage. That's what he proved. Now, here's the problem. When you have this legalistic terminology, what you've essentially done, especially if you label someone, an addict, someone with a disorder, 
something like that, some sort of a massive word like that, loaded term, like disorder, dysfunction, addiction, something like that. What you've essentially done is you've labeled someone something that has isolated them from the rest of their community. You guys see that, right? Okay, because now you have, on this side, you have addicts, people with sexual disorders, people with body dysmorphia, stuff like that. And they're over on this side, and then everyone else over here is normal. You guys get that? They're normal. When you do that to people, essentially what you've done is you've locked them in a cage. You guys get that? You've locked them in a cage. You put them in a situation where they feel, they may not be physically isolated, but they feel isolated. And because of that, when you're in a situation like that, and you don't really have any positive relationships that are teaching you right things, really all you can do is what you've always done. You guys see that, right? right? It, 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 what real motivation or hope do I have if I feel like I'm in this category, which I did in the church, I felt like I was in this category alone, what really hope do I have of changing when I don't feel like anyone loves me, I don't feel like anyone in the church supports me, and I don't feel like any in the, anyone in the church is encouraging me, right? There was really no hope for me to change. There was only hope for me to do was to do what I had always done. Beyond that, I realized that there was a community that I could have, but it just wasn't in the church, right? Guess what kind of people I started hanging out with? Right? I hung out with people that accepted me for me. And the only people that accepted me for me were the people that acted the way that I did. So now I'm in a new community, but that community is not encouraging me to change. That community is encouraging me to stay the same, right? Stay the same. And I stayed the same. That's exactly what it did to me. I, I, again, this is, I know this is something that has impacted a lot of Christians, especially younger ones, because I have a lot of counseling. I have a lot of times of talking to people and knowing that this is where a lot of people are at. They don't develop positive relationships within the church because they feel isolated here. You guys get that? So they leave. They leave. They may stay here physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally, they have checked out. Right? They're never cultivating those relationships because they feel judged. They feel judged and condemned just by walking in the door, and so they never develop. Right? So that's another big thing. Uh, another problem that's kind of related to isolation is it creates a lack of mercy and grace within the body of Christ. Or I could put it this way. It creates a lack of mercy and grace in any community that functions off of legalism. Meaning that if I have created a community that is all about what you can do versus what you can't do, when someone steps out of line, I have to be harsh with them. You guys get that? And again, me and Bo deal with this quite often where you know we'll be counseling a couple or something like that and there's mistakes, there's stuff going wrong. But instead of getting mercy, there's just a whole lot of condemnation. And the reason for this condemnation is because they've bought into a culture of shaming, guilt-based labeling. You guys get that? Because they've bought into that, when someone acts in a way that puts them in a label, they feel justified in shaming them. You guys get that? They feel justified in shaming them and bringing them down. So when this person, even if this person begins to change, they will always see them as their previous label, right? And they'll treat them that way. There's very little forgiveness, mercy, or grace in a community like this. It's very hard 
for people to function. Okay, the next one, and this is kind of like for the people who are quote-unquote successful in a community like this. Okay, so the, I, I talked about the failures, which I fit into that category, right? I fit into the failure to adapt category for, for a culture of legalism, okay? What about the people that are successful in this kind of culture? Well, one of the big things that they're going to fall into is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Why? Remember what I said? The purpose of the law, the moral commandments, um, Bible as well, but any other place, is to create a standard that people can't actually live up to. So it causes them to work hard and never give up, right? So it causes them to be humbled by the fact that they aren't doing everything. Here's the problem. If you run in a program long enough, what you realize is you realize the only way to fit into the program is to pretend like you are fulfilling it. So what that breeds in people is it breeds this desire to look good. So when they come into the community that's legalist, they pretend, they act like they are fulfilling the law when in reality they aren't. And they do that to fit in. Now a lot of you have grown up in the church, a lot of you have been around the church for long enough to know how true that statement is. That people act one way in church and they act a completely different way outside of church. That's hypocrisy. It's being two-faced. It's living a double life. Right? And that is what the church has cultivated because when you have a legalistic society, when so, in order for someone to succeed in it, they have to be a hypocrite. They have to pretend like they're living up to the standard, even though in their hearts they know they're not. Now, another huge uh, something like is it does it ironically does lead to arrogance so the reason why they're doing this is to keep people from becoming arrogant but if you believe that you are fulfilling all the standards then the humbling factor that was built in no longer affects you it no longer impacts you because you believe that you are man i am so great i am living up to an impossible standard how awesome am i you could even get to the place where you believe your own lies you believe your own hypocrisy Meaning that if you were to talk to someone like this and be like, can't you see you're a hypocrite? Can't you see that you talk this way here, but you act this way there? They would be in complete denial about it. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Here you are judging me, and who are you to do that? Look at your life, and they would turn it all back on you, and they would not hear you because they've actually believed their own hypocrisy. They have so deceived themselves in their arrogance that they are beyond correction. Now, that's a very scary place to be. The Pharisees were there, by the way. And these are people that Jesus was not too happy with. Okay? Another thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees, which is really interesting, in their hypocrisy, is he said this, you strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel whole. Now, what he meant by that is, remember what I said? You're not supposed to eat blood because of Leviticus 17? So the Pharisees were freaked out all the time, that a gnat might fly into their mouth. Because what do gnats drink? Blood, right? And if a gnat flies in your mouth, then, oh my gosh, you just ate blood, right? So they're, they're freaking out. And so Jesus is talking about straining a gnat. It's like literally like gagging yourself. So like if a Pharisee, like if a gnat or a mosquito flew into their mouth, they would freak out and they would actually gag themselves and vomit to avoid violating the law. And Jesus says, dude, you would do that to avoid swallowing a gnat. But he's like, but you eat a camel. And this is the example that he gave them to show them their hypocrisy. He said, you say that everything is for God, right? That you do everything for God and you want to honor him. But he's like, but when it comes time for you guys to take care of your parents, which is one of the most important laws in the Old Testament, 
You, instead, in order to get around that, you give all your money to the church so you don't have to support your own family. So this is what people were doing. They were saying, hey, like, I know my parents are, they're getting old and I should support them, but you know what? God is a little bit more important. So I'm going to give, I'm going to just dedicate myself to giving money to God. And they had like, the temple almost developed like a bank. It was really crazy how it worked. They developed like a bank that you could deposit your money at the temple and the temple could use your money and then give you money as you needed it. And so you'd be like, oh, I'll just give all my money to the temple. But really, did the temple actually have it? No, but now neither do your parents. Do you see that? And Jesus' point is very, very simple. He's saying this, you guys are so focused on, on following these legalistic outward commandments that you've missed the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law, Jesus later on put it this way. He says, this is the commandment, the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What's the purpose of the law? To love. And Jesus says, you guys are so focused on keeping the outward commandments, you don't love anybody, not even your own family. You don't love God. Don't tell me that you love God just because you have a legalistic obligation to Him. You don't love Him. You have no passion for Him. Again, if you hung around these legalistic people, you would not get a whole lot of love coming off of them. You guys get that? You wouldn't get a whole lot of, man, I feel like that guy just has an amazing walk with the Lord. So precious. right? So beautiful. What you would get is a lot of legalistic behavior, but no actual intimacy with God or joy in the relationship. Right? So like I said, the person who is in shame in a community like this, they don't feel loved by God, but the person who is a hypocrite, they don't love God or people. They don't love God or people. So they say, oh, I'm all about keeping the commandments, but is it love to shame people all the time and criticize them and ridicule them and hate them and slander them and gossip about them and refuse to help them because it's their own fault? Right? Is that love? No, they're straining at a gnat, but they're swallowing a camel hole. They miss the whole point of the law. No love is emanating from their lives, and because of that, they're hypocrites. And again, I, I do see this often. I do see this often, especially in the ministry that me and Bo are involved with, where people are so focused on legalistically following the law of God that they've missed the point. So they're in a relationship like what Bo was mentioning before we started about being fearful towards their children. And so they're so worried about looking a certain way in church that they control and manipulate their children to act in a way that reflects good on their reputation, but they don't even care about what's happening in their kids' lives. That's hypocrisy. Right? Or a marriage that stays together just because, oh, it's wrong to get a divorce but they cuss at each other, they hate each other, they even hit each other, they cheat on each other, but they're like, oh, we're not getting a divorce, we're following the law of God. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, God, I'm, I'm sure God is like way jazzed about your marriage that is terrible and toxic and is infecting everybody around you. I'm sure God is up in heaven just super, super happy about that, right? They've completely missed the point. They've completely missed the point, but because they look good, they feel like it makes them good. It doesn't. Which leads to the next and final point that I'm going to get to. There's going to always be a lack of purity in people like this. Now, when we talk about purity, we've talked about it here as we've been going through Leviticus. The book of Leviticus has always been hinting at this possibility 
that there's going to be an inward purity for the people. God continuously throughout the Old Testament makes promises to his people that he is going to not only cleanse their outward, he's not only going to forgive them from their sins, but he's actually going to create in them new desires and passions that go after him. Ezekiel 36 is my favorite passage that deals with this promise. God says to his people, I will sprinkle you with water and you will be clean. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh that you may love me and walk in my commandments. Beautiful passage, beautiful promise. God is continuously making these promises to this people. But what prevented this people from actually becoming pure was the law. You guys see that, right? Was this legalism that was going on as a result of the fact that they couldn't fulfill the law of God and they had to relate to God on a legalistic basis so there could not be true passion or genuine joy in a relationship with Him. Not the way that God intended. Okay? The only purity that can exist, the only purity that can actually happen inside of a human heart is the purity that is in response to the deep and passionate love that God has for you that He doesn't expect you to live up to His standards, but He became like you and died in your place so that you could have a relationship with Him based on faith, not works. Someone like that, they can be changed from the inside out. Someone who has a legalistic relationship with God will always follow God outwardly, but will never have inward fruit. That is one of the most damning parts of this legalistic mentality. Now, because of all those negatives, because of all those negatives, our culture has gone the total opposite direction. Okay, so we've, we've seen them, right? Our culture has noticed these negatives, and they said, we don't want to be like this anymore. Now, if you were to ask someone in our culture, and you were to say, hey, what's the greatest threat facing humanity? I'd be willing to bet that the vast majority of people would say, the biggest threat facing our culture is low self-esteem. Right? When people have low self-esteem, that's when bad things happen. And they'll point to all the school shootings, right? When you look at all the school shootings, a lot of these people weren't arrogant, correct? When you, when you look at the Columbine shooters or you look at any of the school shooters recently, you don't see a lot of very arrogant people. What you see is people that were outcasts in school, had super low self-esteem, didn't know what to do with their anger and violence, so they took it out on other people. Or they'll point to all these other people who have horrible amounts of repression. They've been told all their lives that they can't live sexually this way, and so they repress it, and it ends up kind of fracturing their psyche, and it messes them up. Or people who are bullied online, and they end up taking their own life. Or, and you can go down the list. Right? I, I think uh, one person put it best. He says, hurt people hurt people. Right? So when you're hurt, when you're violated, you turn around and you hurt other people to make yourself feel a little bit better. So our society, and rightfully so, we say, low self-esteem, that's the problem. Now here's, here's the great tragedy. We've seen that legalism doesn't work. And we're bending the other way. And in some ways that's good, but in some ways that's really, really bad. Okay? Because essentially what we've said is this. The chief virtue in our society is tolerance. We must be tolerant of everybody. We must affirm everybody unconditionally. And we must love everybody unconditionally. And that is the guiding light of our culture and our society. Right? That's what we feel is best. But there's a lot of issues with this. There's a lot of issues with this that are equally as bad, if not worse, than the legalistic solution. 
Okay. Me and Emma just watched a movie this week called I Feel Pretty. It's, it's kind of funny. It's got, it's got some funny parts. As chick flicks go, you know, I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. But the, I, when I was watching it, it was so cool because I was, you know, planning on teaching this. And I was like, man, like, this is totally what, like, what I was going to talk on. And in the movie, she has, like, super low self-esteem. And so because of that, she acts out and she's always nervous and she never gets what she wants in life. And then she ends up hitting her head and she wakes up and she thinks that she looks exactly as she's always wanted. So her self-confidence goes through the roof. And the moral of the whole movie, the, the, the entire um, message of the movie is this. Don't let other people tell you who you are. You must discover that for yourself and live in a way that makes you happy. Right? So don't worry what other people think. Don't worry what other people think about you. Live for yourself. Have high self-esteem. Have confidence. And you're going to have the life that you want. Right? That's, that's essentially the moral of the movie. And I like that because pretty much everywhere you look in our culture and society, people are singing that message. They think that that's a really, really good thing. There are problems with that, though. If I tell someone, if I say to you, don't worry what anyone else thinks, only care what you think, there's a word for that. What would you call a person who genuinely doesn't care what anyone else thinks and only cares about their own opinion? What would you call someone like that? Selfish, narcissist, sociopath, right? There's a lot of negative terms for someone like this. Not a good thing. When your only cure to the shame-ridden culture of legalism is narcissism, you may have a problem, right? Maybe your cure is a little bit worse than the disease. And our culture is shocked. We are shocked and appalled at how we are the most narcissistic, self-absorbed generation that's ever existed, right? The older generation is like, I don't understand. Why are millennials so entitled? And why are they so self-absorbed? Maybe it's because you've been jamming a message down their throats to become self-absorbed. You succeeded and you've created a bunch of narcissists. Congratulations, right? But why are you surprised by that, right? That shouldn't surprise anybody, but it shocks us somehow, right? This is why our culture and generation are the way that we are. It's because we've been told a message all our lives that life is ultimately about you. Life is about what you want, not what other people want, your value is determined by what you think, not what anyone else thinks. And your purpose is defined by what you, yourself, accomplish, not what other people notice. Right now, that seems very uplifting and seems very cool, but the negatives are very, very intense. I'll run through them really quickly because we're running out of time. <clears throat> first one, biggest one. When you live like this, it's impossible for God to be first. Impossible for God to be first in your life. There's a wonderful ministry. I think they're amazing. I love watching their videos. I'm sure pretty much all of you have heard of them. Um, I am second, right? I love them. They, they basically just, they do testimonies. They film people doing testimonies, and it's amazing. If you've never been on their site, please go on their site, support them. They're awesome. I love, the, I love what they do. But the message of I am second is so powerful and is so beautiful because the whole message, what they've built everything around is the idea of God is first. Do you guys get that? God is first. God is supreme. I am not first. The world is not first. God is first. I am second. I love that. If you make yourself the standard for right and wrong, good and evil, you have put yourself first. Whether you intellectually say, I trust God more than myself or not, doesn't matter. 
if you care more about what you think than anyone else, that includes God. God isn't first in your life. Now, here's my proof of that. Because of that, our generation specifically in the church, if you look at the church culture, which way it's going, there are still some churches that are digging in their heels deep and they're sticking to the legalistic plan. Right? Good on them, they don't learn anything. Right? Now, the churches that are changing, this is what we're seeing. This is what we're seeing about the churches that are changing from that model. Okay? What they've done is they've cultivated a plan, and it actually kind of goes off of what I was saying earlier. They've cultivated a plan to get people to live godly. And this is how they've done it. They have come up with motivators that are positive, but they are based on self-interest. They've come up with motivators that are positive but based on self-interest. Meaning that if I were talking to a group of people and I was trying to get them to, let's say, wait for marriage. Okay? And I'm talking to a group of kids. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to give you a sermon on waiting till marriage. I would spend the entire sermon talking about all the statistics that show that cohabitation fails and how relationships like that are just not going to work out for you, and how much more successful and beautiful marriage is when you wait, right? And I would spend the entire sermon talking about that, but I'd never actually get into the Word of God. Here's what I've done. I have appealed to your ego to get you to live a righteous life. Do you guys get that? Now, here's the absolute proof that this is where our society is going. Back in the day, the vast majority of Leviticus 18, our culture agreed with, right? You wouldn't run into a whole lot of people and you'd be like, hey man, do you think it's okay to have sex with your own daughter? Not a whole lot of people would be like, yes. Right? Pretty much everybody would be like, no, that's not okay. That's disgusting. Hey man, do you think it's okay to have sex with an animal? No, I don't think that's okay. Right? The vast majority of people agreed with Leviticus 18, whether they were atheist, Christian, Hindu, whatever. The vast majority of people did. But because of the recent change, the transition that's happened in our society, where it's about self-interest and self-wants, people are changing their mind. Slowly. It's slowly happening, but it is happening. Meaning, I have heard people with straight faces in front of audience, by the way, get standing ovations for talking about incest and pedophilia. Insane, right? People who are like, hey, you know what? The only, I mean, if we're just worried about self-interest, right? That's all we're worried about is self-interest. What's wrong with incest, right? What do you guys think? What's wrong with incest? If you're only worried about self-interest, what's wrong with it? Your kids will be what? They'll have deficiencies, right? So what's the solution? If that's the only thing that's wrong with it, what can we do? We just tell people who are going to be in incestuous relationships to what? Don't have kids, right? And what's wrong with it? Because it's just love, and love is love. It doesn't matter if it's a sister to a brother, father to his daughter, mother, whatever, right? Love is love. That's okay, right? Just don't have kids. Or pedophiles. What's wrong with a pedophile molesting a little child? Right? What's wrong with it? The pedophile feels good about it. What's wrong with it? It's the, it's the kid, right? It's the kid. Well, okay, so here's what I tell a pedophile. It's okay to be a pedophile. It's okay to have thoughts of pedophilia. It's okay to even watch pornography or things like that that would turn you on. It's okay. Just don't touch a kid who is not consensual. You guys get that? Don't touch a kid, violate a kid, or hurt a kid, and then it's okay. You guys get that? And I've heard people making these arguments, no joke, they're TED Talks, 
You guys can look them up. Where people are making these arguments and they are receiving standing ovations. People are like, awesome, right? So we are moving this way as a society. Why? Because it's all about self-interest. It has nothing to do with objective standards of right and wrong anymore. It just has to do with what is good for you. What's good for you? What feels right for you? Is it harmful or isn't it? If it's not harmful, do it. If it's harmful, we'll talk about that. Right? That's essentially what we've done. God isn't first anymore. We are first. Second problem, you can't take correction. If tolerance is the ultimate objective of our society, how can you possibly take correction? If someone corrects you, they must be a legalist. They must be a jerk. They must be a moralist. They must be trying to make you feel bad. They're shaming you. Right? And we use that language all the time. You're trying to bring my self-esteem down low. Right? And if you bring my self-esteem down low, that's the greatest evil. Right? I need to feel good about myself. And I can't feel good about myself if I feel convicted. Right? So it's possible to take correction. Next one. It's impossible to give correction in our society. Right? Because, again, if I'm living up to the standard of it's, it's all good, whatever, I mean, all you can really do is you could just say, hey, you know, like, I don't like that. But I can't say stop. I could just say I don't like it. Um, I remember me and Bo have this friend named Nathan. Uh, lives up in. Uh, is he still at Stanford? No, he's in Washington. He's in Washington now. Uh, and we we did a podcast with him a little bit. You can look it up on our site on runninglines.org. We did a podcast with him. I remember one of the one of the things that really surprised me in that podcast is uh, you know Nathan is a practicing homosexual uh, who's who claims Christ. He's a believer. He's a practicing homosexual, and we were in a dialogue with him. And one of the surprising things that he said is he was talking about his friends where he was like, hey, you know, like, the Bible is just against people who are uh, polyamorous. It's not against people who are homosexual. It's just against people who are polyamorous, meaning having multiple relationships and not actually cultivating love. He says the Bible is very pro-love. So as long as you're loving, it's okay to practice this lifestyle. And I said to him, I said, Nathan, like, do you have friends that are polyamorous, meaning friends that, you know, just hook up and don't actually commit? And he's like, yeah, of course. I was like, what do you say to them? And he's like, well, I, I just listen to them, and I, I respect where they're coming from, and I, I try to... I was like, I understand that. I was like, but is there ever a time where you need to stop listening and start correcting someone? And he paused, and he said, I don't know. And that really hit me, because it really showed me something. Nathan has a belief. You guys get that? He has a belief that you shouldn't act a particular way. But is he willing to actually correct anyone on that? No. Right? No, he hasn't, because he set up a standard. Do you guys get that? He set up a standard of how people ought to live, and it's through tolerance and acceptance, not through truth or rationality. Now, that's, that's a problem. Okay? Next, there's a lack of justice for victims. Uh, I see this really prevalent in the church now. Meaning that when someone uh, in church stands up and they admit that something bad has happened to them, usually what I've heard, and this really makes me sick, is there's more responsibility placed on the victim than the victimizer. Meaning that someone comes up and they says, man, like, you know, my, my parents abused me, they did this or whatever. Usually, you know, and this is not bad, but the fact that it's the emphasis and the only thing that people talk about makes it bad. Where they say, well, you need to forgive them and you need to do this and you need to make efforts to them and you need to do that. and you need to do... It's like all this responsibility is heaped upon the person that was victimized. You guys get that? Or if someone's in a marriage where they're cheated on, they'd be like, hey, are you forgiving your husband? Are you doing this? Are you making efforts? Are you right? None of that is bad, right? Because mercy's good. But the problem is, is that it's mercy in absence of justice. Do you guys get that? Where there is no responsibility heaped upon the person that actually did the wrong. And that's an issue. That's a huge issue. 
And by the way, if our ultimate goal is self-esteem, nothing takes away your self-esteem faster than putting blame on you for being abused. You guys get that? Okay? So we've kind of failed in that way. Um, next, there is no passion for purity. So the last group, they're not going to be pure because they're living in a legalistic land. But this group isn't going to become pure because there's no passion for it. There's no drive for it. If I just say, hey, everything's okay, even if you come in here and you say, hey, I've done something wrong, I can't correct you. I can't tell you that's wrong. And so because of that, you have no passion to change. You have no motivation to change. Because why would you? If God is totally cool with what you're doing right now, why would you change the way you live if God is completely accepting of you and doesn't want you to? It'd be counterintuitive. Right? So what's the solution? What, what, what do we believe? It, it goes back to what we've been talking about, like I said, this whole time. This whole time as we're going through Leviticus. Leviticus shows us a beautiful balance between the two. When Jesus died for our sins, it shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is serious about sin issues. You guys get that? It shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God cares about living right. He cares so much about it that he was willing to die to make things correct between us and him. He takes it very seriously. There is a punishment, there is a wrath for our actions, for violating what God's covenant tells us to do. But the other side of it is that God demonstrates his love for us in that he was willing to take it instead of making us pay the price. When you bring those things together, you build a community that is able to take the good parts of both of these and mold them together to create a society that takes things seriously, offers correction when it's needed, but does not succumb to hypocrisy, bigotry, or shame. Because what we've done is instead of saying, hey, you know what, shame comes from people saying bad things about you, what we say is the Bible says that you are far more sinful than you ever wanted to believe. All of us are far more sinful than we ever wanted to believe. But the Bible also says that you are far more loved than you would ever care to understand. That is the message of the gospel. And when you bring it together, when you bring it together, you gain the ability to have a society that is not ruled by shame and it's also not ruled by licentiousness. You have a society that is passionate for change, passionate for purity, but it's doing it for all the right reasons. It's doing it out of love and not condemnation. Blaise Pascal famous French philosopher, he once said, Jesus is a God whom you can approach with humility, but without despair. His power and his might and his justice will humble you because you will see what a sinner you are in his presence, but his love and his care and his forgiveness will lift you up out of despair because you will see that even though you are that bad, God loves you anyway, and he loves you in reality. Not in some legalistic way. He loves you passionately and intimately. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of my favorite passages. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with singing and He will quiet you with His love. An amazing passage that talks about the beauty and the passion of God's love. So this will be kind of like our guiding light. This is the foundation for what we're going to be going through. We're going to be reading through the law, but we'll always bring it back to the idea of, well, what is God's message to us in this today? How do we live in light of that? And how do all of us change for His sake and not for what we want? Right, let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your law. We thank You so much that by it we are led in such beautiful ways.
that you teach us the right way to be and the right way to live, and we know it is for our good. Lord, I pray that whatever uh, misgivings that we have towards your commandments, whatever fears and whatever even resentments that we hold towards the things that you've asked us to do, I pray that you would allow us to be melted in, in the truth and the intimacy of your love, God. That we would be able to see how beautiful you are and we would desire to live for you, not out of shame or guilt or repression, but we would desire to live after you because you are worthy. Lord, thank you so much for your cross. Thank you for doing all the work necessary to make us right with you. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in that. And in your name, amen.